0: Well, again, good morning, all, especially if you're uh, visiting with us this morning, maybe your first time or um, your second or third time here at DPC, we're uh, we're glad you're here and uh, glad to be worshiping the Lord together. My name is Jake Patton, and that was uh, Tim Udage. We're both pastors here at this church. And uh, we're continuing our study in Luke chapter 4 this morning. Uh, So if you have your Bible, let's open them together to Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week uh, in verse 31. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 31, and if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text uh, printed for you in your bulletin. Um, This is the the second part in a a two-part series. Uh, Like I said, we're kind of picking up where we left off last week, And, and the best way to summarize last week is freedom declared. Jesus comes on the scene, He's beginning His public ministry, and He's saying, here is what I'm going to be all about, and here is what I am going to be doing. And He talks about this freedom that is more than just physical, it's spiritual, it's this cosmic freedom that He is here to bring. That was last week. That's Freedom Declared. This week, right on the heels of this passage, just so that we have a clear understanding of what this freedom really looks like in our day-to-day life, um, this week is Freedom <coughs> Illustrated. We have, we have two miracles, two situations here where we get to see exactly what this freedom is uh, that Jesus has been talking about. So with that in mind, this is, this is Freedom Illustrated. Uh, Luke chapter 4, beginning in Verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, "'Be silent, and come out of him.' And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, "'What is this word?' For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house.' Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, "'You are the Son of God!' But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, for this word, we're grateful. Would it pierce us? Would it give us that beautiful wound? Would it cause the scales to fall from our eyes? Would you unstop our ears and unharden our hearts? Allow your word to change us, not just on the outside, but the inside. Encourage us so that we might glory in the name of Christ together, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not sure exactly how your, your family does it, but when does, you know, according to your family tradition, when does the Christmas season officially begin for you? When does it begin? Uh, for some of you, it's the day after Thanksgiving, and that's why you don't have friends. Just kidding. That's me. I'm that guy. It's always the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, for you, it might be it's not until we get a tree in the house, or, or maybe for some of you it's when we have lessons and carols. That really kicks it off for you. Well, regardless of of, of really when you start, of when the Christmas season begins for you, Christmas is one of those holidays that doesn't sneak up on you. You can see it from a mile away, right? All the radio stations stop playing the regular music, and what do they play? They play the really bad Christmas music 24-7, right? All this claymation, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas special, those start taking over the airwaves… Right? That big center aisle in your pharmacy turns into like Christmas central, like Christmas candy, Christmas wrapping, like everything is, is green and red. Right? Christmas is, isn't something that just springs on you. You see it coming from a long, long way away. The signs of it are everywhere, unless you're living under a rock. Well, we're talking about the kingdom of God this morning, and this is the first time Luke has, has addressed this idea, this theme, this kingdom of God And the kingdom of God is very similar to the Christmas season in a lot of ways. They act a lot the same. And here's what I mean. The kingdom of God has a special day. There is a day coming when this kingdom is going to be fully realized. We don't know when that is, but we've been promised that it's coming. It's somewhere down here. But we live, you and I, uh, where we are right now, we live in the kingdom season, so to speak, And the kingdom's arrival has everything to do with Jesus' arrival. He comes on the scene and declares what? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not fully realized yet. That day is coming, but the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom season is here. In other words, you're going to see signs. You're going to see things. You're going to see illustrations of this kingdom come here and now before your very eyes. And in theological terms, we call this the already and the not yet. It's both. It's a paradox. Yes, this kingdom is going to come, and there's a day when it's going to begin, and it's going to be a glorious day. But we get to experience this kingdom of God in small ways, in small pictures, and in different ways, even in this life. That began with Jesus, and, and that's where we are. That's where we are. There's a, with this in mind, there's also a, another reality that we're living under. Not only do we get to experience glimpses of the kingdom of God, we're also experiencing what we call the curse. Now, what in the world is the curse? Long ago, Genesis chapter 3 tells us our original parents rebelled against God, and they broke the covenant. And the penalty for breaking the covenant with God was this curse, and this curse was cosmic. We feel it on our insides. Our souls are dead and rebellious towards God. We feel it on our outsides. Our bodies break down Our bodies aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, We see it in creation. We see it all over the world. We see this curse everywhere. And and so the reality for us this morning is to go, we live on one hand under this curse. We see it everywhere. We see it in ourselves. We see it in others. We see it in our world. But we're also living in the kingdom, which is at hand, which Jesus began long ago. So we're going to see bad things. We're going to see terrible things. But we're also going to see really, really good things. Now, how does Jesus go about showing and declaring that this, this kingdom is, is truly at hand? How do we know that it really is at hand? Well, he's going to use, in this passage, two miracles. And boy, there has been some ink spilled over, you know, why, why does Jesus do miracles? Is it, you know, to impress? Is it to coerce? Is it to show people that he really is, you know, a deity and that he really is powerful? Those aren't the real reasons why Jesus does miracles. Here's what I suggest to you this morning. If, if we'll let it these miracles, you know, these aren't just like minor upgrades uh, that people get. Instead, these miracles are examples of what this new natural order, of what this new kingdom is going to look like. If we'll look at these miracles and the results, Jesus is saying this is going to be the new normal. This is going to be your future reality. This is how the kingdom of God will look when it is finally brought in to its full fulfillment. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these two miracles this morning, and what we're going to learn about the kingdom through Jesus is that this kingdom is going to overcome evil. That's the first point. It's going to overcome evil, and it's going to restore our bodies. It's going to overcome evil and restore our bodies. Well, what do we learn um, about evil uh, from this passage? Uh, Look with me again at verses 35 and 41. But Jesus rebuked him, being the demon, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Now jump to verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying, "Are, Are you the Son of God? You are the Son of God, excuse me. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. As 21st century believers and readers of the story, what are we supposed to do when we hear about this character, Satan, and these characters, demons? Right? Are we supposed to look at these as, as an allegory? Are, are these fables? Um, are these creatures real? And Scripture goes to great length to say, indeed, they are. And if we'll let Luke do this, Luke wants to give us these set of kingdom lenses. He's saying, put, the, put on these lenses. Because we're used to seeing the natural world, things we can touch, see, smell, hear. But if you put on these kingdom lenses, you'll see that there's also a spiritual world. There's something else that you can't see with your regular eyes. There are spiritual forces of good, and there are spiritual forces of evil. What we're going to see in this passage is what Paul would later go on to declare our battle is not against what? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Who is our real enemy? These spiritual forces of darkness, these things we can't see. And so, what do we learn about these spiritual forces of darkness? Well, the first thing we learn is that compared to the light, compared to goodness, they are no match we're tempted to think when we read through stories like this, like this world is in a tug of war, and on one end of the rope is Jesus, and on the other end is Satan, and boy, we sure hope he wins. We hope he's strong enough, we hope he can endures. But anytime you've seen an encounter with Jesus um, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, um, it's always a blowout. It's always a landslide. No ground is ever gained. By evil. No ground is ever gained by darkness. The beginning of of chapter 4, Jesus has an encounter with Satan himself, and Satan retreats from Jesus. Jesus doesn't retreat, Satan retreats. And in this passage, we're hearing about demons who are being cast out and being rebuked. Compared to the light, who is Jesus Christ, they are not peers, Jesus and Satan. They are not equal in power and substance or glory. They're not in the same weight class, not even close. Compared to the light, they're no match. Who are they? Um, What Scripture tells us is that Satan and and demons used to be angels, right? They used to be in the heavenly courts, and there was a rebellion, and they were cast down to the earth. And John would say in his gospel that as a result, Satan and, and his armies and his legions, their job is to prowl this earth, looking for souls to devour. That's what John says, and that's their purpose. But the good news is they have no, absolutely no power over Jesus, no power over him. He always wins, but, but they do have power over something, and that's us. They're stronger than us, and that's a scary thought. Where do we see that? Well, in this passage, we know, and f- also from others, that um, demons can possess men. They can possess women. They can possess children, which is both scary and sad. Um, they can inflict harm. They can speak. They can be heard. Um, and their job is, again, to promote and encourage evil. You know, we really have two enemies. We have this enemy on the outside that is Satan and his demons, but we've also got this enemy on, this insi- on, our, on our insides. Our heart shows up rebellious and against the Lord and sometimes when the enemy on the outside mixes with the enemy on the inside, it's always chaos, and it's always tragedy. We can't say that, you know, Satan and the devil, they're, they're the origin of evil. We can't say the devil made us do it, right? We're at fault, not just them. But they can influence, even to the point of possession and powerlessness and captivity. Um, it's, it's, it's scary to think about. So, what does Jesus do with these spiritual forces of evil? What does he do? The text says that he rebukes them. And notice, again, in this passage, look at verse 35. This exorcism is perfectly executed by Jesus. It's almost implied here that that at times under demon possession and even under exorcism, it could bring great harm to the host. But Jesus, by the word of his power, what does he say? Come out of him. And the demon immediately leaves. Right? And it does this man absolutely no harm. It's a perfect exorcism. And notice this too. It wasn't just for him. Right? What does he do when he leaves the synagogue? He goes out into the crowds and begins to uh, release uh, the crowds from their own demons and their own possession. Um, and, And tell me if you've ever felt this way or you think this way especially in light of all the great tragedy and all the great evil we see. We don't have to go back that far in our week to go. We have a perfect example of the curse and the fall of man and what happened in Orlando last week. It's happening at such frequency and with such great scope that, you know, evil is almost becoming like the new norm for us. Is it not? Um, it's, It's less becoming the exception and more becoming the rule. So much so that it's just like, when's the next thing going to happen? When's the next Charleston shooting? When's the next Orlando shooting? When's the next, you know, fill in the blank? It's almost as if we've, we've just kind of gone, you know, I guess this is just the way this world is going to be. And what Jesus here is telling us, this miracle is no. The forces of evil aren't meant to be here. And they're not going to be here in the kingdom come. As, as natural as, as evil feels to us here, as a a big part of life as as it is to us, these forces of evil are unnatural in the kingdom of God. They will not exist there. They're unnatural. When this kingdom of God comes into its full fruition, there's going to be a cosmic rebuke of evil. John, when he's giving his his revelation, the, the last letter in our scriptures, he says, this kingdom of God is a place where there is no darkness, only light, And he's being figurative. Saying Jesus is the light. And there's no evil. There's no enemy on the outside. No spiritual forces of darkness. It's not the exception. It's certainly not the rule. It's just not there. And that's good news. We don't know what a world looks like without evil. We've gotten so used to it, right? What does a world look like absent of evil? It bends our minds he doesn't stop there. He says, not only is this kingdom going to overcome evil, but it's going to restore our bodies. This first point was very spiritual. Uh, This next one is very practical, very tangible. Um, Look again at verse 39. And he, being Jesus, stood over her, which is who? This is Peter's mother-in-law. And before we move on, make a note. We have a husband appealing and interceding on behalf of his wife's mother. It can happen, okay? It can happen. Um, and he's, he's advocating on her behalf. And Jesus stands over her and rebukes this fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. You see, our bodies have always been important to God. He created them. He doesn't make junk. And as one of my seminary professors used to say, and he's not going to junk what he makes. doesn't make junk and doesn't junk what he makes. Our bodies have always been important. They house our, our souls. And if you're a believer, uh, what the Scriptures tell us is that um, when, when the Father adopts you into his family, he gives you a sign, a seal of his approval of your adoption into his family. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit. He gives you the Holy Spirit. Your body becomes its host. Our bodies have always been important to God, and they always will be important to God. And so what happens to hers? Jesus does the same thing to her that he did to the demoniac, right? He rebukes the demon, and with her, he rebukes the fever. Now, when you hear this word rebuke, what do you think of? What immediately comes to mind? When we use that word today, uh, rebuke has like a sting to it, right? It's a heavy correction. That means someone's getting taken to the woodshed, so to speak, right? If someone is being rebuked. Um, It certainly had that connotation uh, in the Greek language, but there's also another part of it that's very compassionate, that's very sympathetic. When Jesus uses this word rebuke, this is the second time he uses it. It's not going to be the last time he uses it in this passage. What he's also saying as he's using this word is, is this sentiment What's happening here ought not be. This thing that we're looking at right here is a foreign object. This should not be the case. These things ought not to be happening. He says that to the demon. He says that to this fever. And again, what happened to the demoniac also happens to Peter's mother-in-law. She is perfectly healed. She's so healthy and she's so revived. Not only has the fever left her body, but what does she do? What does the text say? After the fever has been rebuked, she immediately gets up and what? Goes out and begins to serve them, right? Now, if you and I get a cold or get the flu… There comes a point to when the virus has officially left our body, right? But we're tired and we're exhausted. We need rest. We need to recoup. You see how thorough this healing is? She has her energy, her vitality, her life restored, not just her health. Total healing. And again, we do the same thing with sickness and disease uh, like we do with evil, it's become such a natural part of our world, such a natural part of our life. We all get colds. We all get sick. It, it just come, it becomes the new normal for us. And what Jesus is here is saying No, I rebuke that fever. This was never meant to be, and it's not going to be. In the kingdom of God, sickness and disease is unnatural. This is not the way things were supposed to be. Your bodies are important. And in this kingdom of God, your body is going to be restored to perfect health, to perfect life. We get to see this in Jesus after he's crucified and dead and buried. He comes back. He's the first fruits among the resurrection of the dead. And he shows himself to the disciples. He shows himself to other individuals. He eats food in his resurrected body, in his resurrected state, in his glorified state, Jesus eats. Our bodies aren't going anywhere. They're going to be restored fully. I want to close with, uh, with two things this morning. First, I want to speak to um, the believers in the room. Um, what this passage, um, I, I believe, is inviting us to this morning is, is a prayerful optimism. If, if miracles are what we think they are, And if Jesus is doing exactly what we think he's doing, ushering in this kingdom already, but not yet, and if this kingdom come is real and is as good as the Scriptures make it out to be, how should then we as believers, filled with the Holy Spirit, how should we live? I think what this passage is encouraging us to do is to be prayerfully optimistic. It's harder than it sounds. And here's why. When you look at the story, Luke uses this word amazing a number of different times. The synagogue goers are amazed. What are they amazed at? The authority of Jesus' teaching, his word spoken. They're looking at this guy and his expression of power and going, that's amazing. When we read this story, there's something else amazing in this passage too. Did you pick up on it? Where would you expect in all of creation, where do you envision seeing a demoniac, someone who's been possessed by a demon? Where would you think you would find a person like that? Maybe isolated somewhere by themselves in a cave like Legion or in the wilderness, somewhere out in the wild. Where's the demoniac in this passage? He's in the synagogue. He's in a place very much like this among fellow worshipers who know God, a house of worship, a house of praise an informed congregation that know about the power of God from the Old Testament, right? One place we would never think to assume we would find a demoniac, someone possessed by a demon, would be in a church, would be in a synagogue. But that's where he is, and that's puzzling. One writer, when he's, he's writing about this, this setting, he makes this comment, and it's um, better than I could say, so I'm going to quote him. This is Ray Ortland. He says, These people, these synagogue goers, were not alarmed by the demoniac's presence. I suppose they had gotten used to this poor man. Their reading of the Bible was so covered over with layers of tradition, the power was suppressed. Their thinking had become unclear, their alertness dulled, and over time they probably made allowances for this man and his weirdness. They had to because they had absolutely no power to help them. Now, believers, again, DPCers or visitors, if if you'll hear me, and if you'll let the Spirit beautifully wound you, do you not see yourself in this passage? He nailed us. This is the church. This is us. And this is how it looks for us. This is how we do the exact same thing. We we go to our community groups, we go to our small groups, and we're sitting across from that couple… And we've heard that their marriage has been on the rocks for week after week after week. And we don't say this, but in our head we go, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a pastor. My marriage isn't even perfect. I, I can't do anything for them. I'm not going to say anything because then that's going to sound like weirdness and I'm just not going to do anything. Rather than being prayerfully optimistic, we're being quietly cynical. Or maybe we have a friend whose whose body is literally in harm's way. They're not dealing with a cold or the flu, but they've gotten that dreaded diagnosis, cancer, leukemia, paralysis, blindness. They're losing their hearing. They're losing their ability to function. And their body is wasting away. And you want to do something, but in your head you have this conversation, it's I'm not a doctor. What can I do? I'm not a pastor. I don't know how to, you know, counsel and and comfort people. I mean, this… Sickness, death happens to everybody. This is just the way the world is. We're more like these synagogue goers than we really want to admit. We feel powerless. We're quiet. But deep down, we're cynical because we have forgotten the power of God. We have forgotten that the kingdom which is coming is also at hand And know this too, O believer, hear this. That same Spirit that anointed and lighted on Jesus at His baptism, that empowered Him to do all of these miracles, all of these teachings, who gets credit for that? The Holy Spirit gets credit for that, right? That same Holy Spirit, the readers of this passage didn't know this, but we know this now, that same Spirit is given to each of you As the Father's sign and seal upon your soul that you are His and that He is yours. And what does that infer and imply then to us? If the same Spirit that was in Jesus, and this is the same Spirit that performed all these miracles, if this is the same Spirit that hovered over the waters in creating this world, if this is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if that same Spirit is in me, then what can't I do? Well, here's one thing you shouldn't do. You shouldn't sit quietly, and you shouldn't sit cynically. You should be prayerfully optimistic because the kingdom is at hand. And this isn't the only reason, but this is one of the reasons why we don't see the power of God unleashed on Greenville and unleashed on our community, is because we're not asking, and we're not believing. You want to know why we don't see the power of the Spirit in our city, in our own lives, with our own addictions, and our own friends, and their own troubles? Sometimes we ask, and the answer is no, and we've got to deal with that. But most of the time, it's because we're simply not asking. We've lost this wonder and this amazement in the power of God that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Illness is foreign. Dark forces of evil, they're not supposed to be here and they're not going to be here. This is not natural. It's unnatural. Have you forgotten the power of God? We need to wake up. And we need to be really good at asking, really good about speaking, really good about going to bat for other people who are suffering. Why? Because we can see the kingdom of God here and now if we'll just believe and ask. It's that simple. We're not asking. I'm thinking about you two this morning. If you're here, and you wouldn't categorize yourself as a believer, um, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here, and we've always got a seat for you. Um, this passage actually ha- has something for you as well, and it's this: you know, you don't have to look far in our world to um, to see people, you know, doing nice things for others. Niceness is is everywhere. But when, when one person is doing a whole lot of nice things, we kind of raise an eyebrow and go, what's the subtext here? What's, what's going on? Why is this person being so nice? If, if they're in politics, we're going, oh, they're just trying to buy votes, right? They're just promoting their campaign. If it's a narcissist, you know, they're just doing good things so they can promote themselves, so they can look good in front of other people, best foot forward kind of stuff. Or if they're religious, I'm going to do a whole bunch of nice and, and good things because if I do that, then then my God, my deity, will like me and approve of me more. There's a lot of people out there doing a whole lot of nice things. Why is Jesus doing a whole bunch of nice things in this passage? Why is He being kind? Is He trying to coerce, impress people? Does He have a big ego? Is He trying to build His campaign? No, it's simply because He's compassionate. He's the embodiment of love. And you say, okay, pastor, how in the world do you know that? Well, consider this. If Jesus really is who He says He is, if He really is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, like the demons claim, if He really is the Son of God, then what He could do is by the snap of His finger or just by the word of His power, He could have healed everyone, all the demoniacs, not just this one man, and healed everybody who had a sickness, not just this this mother-in-law, everybody in the snap of a finger, But he didn't do that. With his healing, Jesus was very inefficient, incredibly, uncomfortably inefficient. Did you pick up on it? Verse 40, look at the second half of verse 40. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Why did he go person to person? Why did he go sickness to sickness? Why did he go demon to demon? Why does anybody do that? Why is anybody inefficient like that? The only reason, the only explanation, is because they care. It's because they're compassionate. There's no self interest here, no self promotion, just pure love. And for you, if you're here this morning, sometimes you wonder okay, if I do enter in this whole relationship with Jesus, what is he going to do to me? Am I going to be a trophy? Am I going to be a, a drone, a pawn? Is he going to take me to the woodshed? You know what he's telling us in this passage? is First and foremost, he wants to be kind and compassionate. And he wants to love you. That's what he wants to do with you. He wants to heal you, free you from things that are on the inside and from things that are on the outside. And he wants to give you a glimpse of his kingdom that is coming. And if you'll repent... And if you will call upon his name to be saved, he will save you a seat at the table. He will prepare a room for you in his father's house. He wants to be compassionate and loving towards you. That's what he wants to do with you. I want to close with this. I'm not a big proponent of, you know, hey, having a a favorite verse. Um, But if you have an opening uh, for that in your life right now, uh, I would like to respectfully submit verse 43. If you've got a blank spot, you know, on your refrigerator, cut out verse 43. Make this your favorite verse. Stick this one on your refrigerator. Why in the world is verse 43 so good? Listen to what it says. But he being Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Simply put, if you're a believer here this morning, you're a believer because Jesus left Capernaum. He was tempted to stay. The disciples were tempted to stay. And he could have, but he didn't. Why? Because he said, this freedom that I've declared and that I've now just illustrated, it needs to go to other people. And those disciples took it to other people, and those people took it to other people until it finally came to rest upon you. And you heard the good news of the kingdom of God. And by his mercy, you repented. You are here and you are a believer today because he did not stay in Capernaum. Praise the Lord. And you, this morning, if you hear, if, if you consider yourself an outsider of the church, it's not Jesus, it's not one of his disciples. But he is the Word incarnate. And through this passage, he's saying the same invitation goes for you. Do you want freedom? from sin, from dark forces of evil, bodies that will never waste away. That's my kingdom. That's what I'm ushering in. You get to see glimpses of it here and now. It's going to be fully realized in the day that's to come. Call upon the name of the Lord. Turn and be saved. He wants to be kind. Oh, man, that's good news. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, help us Help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that truly understand, hearts that truly repent. Wound us with your word, but don't leave us in our despair. Don't leave us in our brokenness. Instead, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us a new name? And would you give us what you require of us, faith, hope, and belief? Do it so that we might call many in this city, our brother and sister, and that together we might boast in the power of the Spirit and the promises of the Father and in the obedience and the atonement of Christ. And we pray this together in His name. Amen.